want to begin this morning with a question. How many people here have ever experienced that feeling of being proper lost? <laughs> I mean, like, proper lost. You got in your car or went for a walk and you ended up somewhere and you had absolutely no idea where you were. Well, I can't yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm not even going to repeat that. It's one of these weird feelings when we can feel a little bit unsettled, perhaps even a little bit vulnerable, actually. And oftentimes what we try to do is determine and steal ourselves that we can find our own way out of this. That if we drive further in any direction that we pick at that point, it really doesn't matter at that point, that we will somehow find something that's going to get us back on the right path. Ultimately, we may eventually get to that point where we have to wrestle with the greatest dilemma that generally a male can ever face. Thinking back at Malcolm, should I stop and ask for directions? <laughs> let me get. Let me make it straight. That is not a nice place to get to. Okay. Maybe I guess maybe today it's less of an issue. We all, of course, we have our, our phones, and they generally have some form of sat nav on them, and that sat nav of course, can take us to virtually any place that we want to. And of course, no one would argue with a sat-nav, right? <laughs> that would just be silly. I have to say I've experienced that feeling even with a sat-nav. I remember, I think it was four weeks after I'd, I'd passed my driving test, we went on a driving holiday. No pressure to pass that test, by the way. Uh, it would just mean the whole holiday was cancelled. Um, and there was one point when Bethany had decided to leave her phone way back and, what, maybe 150 miles from where we departed. So I had to drive back and get this phone. And um, on the way back, the sat-nav decided, hey, you want to go motorways, I'm going to take you on an adventure. You're going to go back roads instead. And inevitably, we got to one back road which was closed. Then we turned around and we got to another road which we could see the motorway. There was just no way of getting onto it. And eventually I ended up in a service station which looked identical to one that we'd seen at the other side of Chester. We're in the middle of England at this point, okay? And I thought, I have absolutely no idea, no idea whatsoever where I am now. I think the sat-nav's taking me all the way back to past Chester at this point. And I felt that sense of panic. I have no idea where I was. Turned out it was at the service station on the other side of the motorway, but that's besides the point as to where I wanted to be. But we experience that feeling of lostness, and, and it's one that can be unsettling and jarring. And I think, why am I talking about that as we begin? I, I am asking that question because we live in a world that is deeply loved by God. We're told that in Scripture, God so loves this world that he sent his one and only Son. And yet, in many ways, this world has lost its direction. It's lost and it often doesn't realise it. It's lost its moral compass in lots of ways. And we can see as we look into what some of the things that happen, it's trying. But it's setting, settling sorry, in the wrong, wrong places with so many things. We see it oftentimes of people that have allowed money to become the dominant voice. Increasingly, we are very at ease with classifying and judging people by national boundaries almost as what their worth might be. We live in a world that gives us a lot of sense of unease. And why do I begin with that this morning? I begin with that because 
I want, I've mentioned the journey. There are times it goes down the wrong turns. And what we see here in these verses is that 2,000 years ago, someplace round about Jerusalem, God did something remarkable. He poured out his spirit into this world. He ushered in the latter days. And that message, and that event, sorry, was defined by a message that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I've just realised, I don't know where the clicker is. We've, we've lost the clicker. I've had. <laughs> there was no way I could have naturally introduce that into where I was at at this point, so I just had to break break it there. We see this promise fulfilled. This two thousand years ago, this amazing thing that happened that the Spirit would be poured out on all. It didn't matter their age. It didn't matter their gender. None of that would be relevant. The Spirit would be poured out on all people. Everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ, would experience that Holy Spirit. And it all begins at this very first point. And this event is the indicator of all of those latter days. The promise fulfilled that God would do this amazing thing. It's an indicator to salvation. It's an indicator to hope, but there's also strong allusion, allusions to judgment and to the coming and return of Jesus Christ as well. What happened in Acts is that God planted something amazing into this world. Something contrary to that lost journey that the world is on. Something that screams louder than any satnav could about truth and justice, forgiveness, hope and salvation. Something empowered by a heavenly source that declares to this world that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. And it began with these rather unusual events that are told in the second chapter of the book of Acts. So I want us just to have a little look at what is going on here. We see the believers gathered when the day of Pentecost comes. They were all together in one place. Now we're not told here what that all means. Was it all as in the disciples? Was it all as in the 120? Was it all as in every believer? Obviously Luke doesn't see that as the key point of what he's saying. It's generally thought it was far more than just the believers gathered, uh, the, sorry, not just the believers, the disciples gathered in one place. But there they were, they were together. Fellowship, and this amazing thing happens, this wind fills this room. Numa is what the Greek is for. It's a phrase for the spirit, and he's clearly moving in power here. We get these uh, uh, unique events as it, this, the spirit moves and it divides into tongues as fire, and it rested on each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance. So, literally, this group of people are baptized in figurative fire. As, a, as these tongues of fire appear upon their heads, and it's exactly what, what John prophesied, I baptize you with water, but here comes one soon that will baptize you with spirit and with fire. And this is the literal fulfillment of that. Symbolic, of course. I'm sure they didn't actually have their hair singed off as these events unfolded. But what we see is prophecy after prophecy being fulfilled in this really unique event. And it all unfolds and it spills out. It spills out and soon they're in the streets and they're speaking and, and, and obviously just so enthused and filled with this joy and this new experience that they're having at this moment in time. 
And of course, it is actually literally the time of Pentecost, which, one of the, which is a Jewish feast as well. So there's many people there. And as Rachel did a great job earlier reading all the nations that these people had come from, because many are listed. The point of that being, there is people from all over the place there. People from many, many, many nations. And what they're experiencing when they see these events occur before them is that they can all hear it proclaimed in their own natural tongue. Now, there ain't no fisherman or no disciple or believer that's going to be able to speak in every tongue known and listed at this point. What's happening is something supernatural, something unique, and it's something intended by the Holy Spirit that any, any obstacle that could prevent somebody from hearing the message, the hope of Jesus Christ, at this point in time is being removed. Every obstacle is being removed so they could hear because one of the jobs that the Holy Spirit, Jesus spoke of him coming to do, he was coming to point to Jesus, to the events of Jesus. And that is what we see here. And of course, the response to this is so often when it's things that we don't understand is mockery. I don't understand how drinking wine can make you speak in new languages, by the way. I've seen it take away your capacity to speak any language. Or become very fluent in, shall we say, French. Um, But I've never seen it actually give you the capacity to speak a new language. It doesn't do that. It's actually quite an absurd and ridiculous thing to do. But it shows the defensiveness of the people at this point. Oh, there's clearly something exuberant going on over there. And despite the fact I can actually hear them in my natural tongue, I'm just going to dismiss them as drunk. They're off their heads. And that way I can create some sort of distance between me and these events and dismiss it as irrelevant. But Peter doesn't let them get off with that. Peter doesn't let them get off with that because as he is filled with the Holy Spirit and as the Holy Spirit begins to dominate and prompt his thinking here, it pushes him towards the first preaching event. Kerigama it's called. This is the first time we see this happen in the church. As they resort to mockery, Peter says, no, it's not happening that way. He stands up and he addresses them. Makes it clear that this has nothing to do with alcohol. This is the fulfillment of the prophecies of Joel. In the last days, so shall it be that the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. He lists the prophecy, he lists what God is going to do, he lists the elements of judgment, he lists the elements of hope that all who call, call sorry, on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What we see here as these peculiar events unfold, as the Spirit takes it to a place where the name of Jesus Christ is glorified and proclaimed and that message of the gospel, the only hope for this world is laid before the people that are present. That is what the Holy Spirit does in this amazing story. So I want us just to have a wee look at a few of the implications of what happens here. One of the things that we do need to take note of is what Sheena has said. Oh, we're repeating that again. Okay, well, it turns out I've actually forgot to write a whole point. That's excellent. Well done, William. So the first thing I want us to look at is the creation. There is a creation moment that happens here. And Sheena's already mentioned this. This is the creation of the church. The body of Christ. Okay? 
Now we might think, really, is it? There was believers before that. Well, L.L. Morris, a theologian from uh, Australia, who sadly passed away in 2006, he, he addresses that, of course, when he says this. There were, of course, many believers before this. But only now were they constituted as the body of Christ. And the full sense of the church and vigorous life, redeemed by the cross of Christ, invigorated by divine power, set forth on the path of work and worship. The church certainly did not come into existence until the day of Pentecost. For this is when the Holy Spirit is poured out on all and all are bound together in that faith by that Spirit. So this is the creation of a body. The church's birthday, as Sheena said. That body that would continue and be commissioned by Jesus and be commanded by Jesus to continue his work, to be his body, to be his hands, his feet, his messengers, his ambassadors. Those that live that hope and proclaim it to the world that they live in. That body is created as that spirit is poured out because it's that spirit that, as Sheena says, gives us the power and the capabilities to do the things that God will ask of us. It isn't all some natural and DIY thing. It's not the case of much like I go on on this leadership course next week. If we go on lots of courses, we can do all the things that Jesus asks of us. No, that's not how it works. The Holy Spirit empowers us. And yes, of course, we have to develop the gifts. That's why I'm going on this course next week. But the power comes from the Holy Spirit. So we see this, the creation of the body. But this body is unique because... I don't know why I'm doing that because this clip's not there. There is unity and diversity here. Now, as we see the, 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 the proclaiming at first, in all the different languages that are present, one of the things you're seeing there is almost a reverse of what happened at Babel. Now, at Babel, we decided, hey, we're humanity, we're united, we're going to build this great big huge tower and get to heaven itself. Humanity set themselves up in opposition to God, and the pride that can dwell in the human heart got so monstrous that one of the things that God decided to do was introduce a variety of languages. And on that course went... Well, here we see that kind of reverse that's rolled back here. All distinctions are kind of pushed to the side here. The core thing is this amazing thing that God has ushered in through Jesus Christ and now through the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. All distinctions are becoming part of that unity. Part of a people, a body, who have a faith in Jesus Christ and are empowered and sealed by the Holy Spirit. That is what defines the body of Christ. It's not shared interests. It's not the fact that we all agree about the same things, that we all support the same football teams, or vote for the same political parties, or like the same things, or love the same music. It's not about any of that. It's about Jesus Christ. Our shared hope in him. And a shared experience of that Holy Spirit as well. Because it is, I'm doing it again, the same Spirit. It's the same Spirit that's poured out on all. The Holy Spirit will be poured out on all people. It's not a case of the leaders get this dose of the Holy Spirit. And the other people get this dose of the Holy Spirit. So the disciples are in one place and get the Holy Spirit. And everyone else gets a slightly different version. The same Spirit is poured out on all 
that same spirit let loose in this world to bring transformation and to bring hope. There is no class system here. All are filled and called to be part of this new body. To impact the world that we live in as part of this new body. To literally, to figuratively, to metaphorically, to in every sense possible, be Jesus' hands and feet on this earth. When it says we are part of the body, yes, there's a clear thing of Jesus' head of the body. Everything is drawn from him. But we're called to as part of that body. Act and be in this world in such a way that it brings the same kind of fruits that it did when Jesus ministered here as well. So there's a creation, a creation of something unique, the body of Christ, the church. And what that Spirit then does, spoilers, is directs outward. The Holy Spirit literally pushes them out of wherever it was and, it's, and they're soon in the streets. Public. Present before the people that know nothing about Jesus Christ and filled by the Spirit. And what happens? Well, we see that Jesus is proclaimed. This is one of the things that the Spirit does. He doesn't just simply appear to cause chaos or simple excitement. No, the Spirit comes with a distinct purpose. He points to Jesus. He is ensuring here that Jesus is proclaimed. He directs to him. And this first event of preaching that we see from the church, it lifts up the name of Jesus. It lays bare the hope that Jesus brings into this world. It makes clear that all of this was prophesied. This isn't some spur-of-the-moment thing, some spontaneous thing that's happened. This has been foretold. This has been promised. This has been fulfilled. And at this moment, those latter days begin. And one of the elements of that that is alluded to here is judgment. Elements here that we see. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and the signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapour of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great day of, of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. Now, I don't know about yourselves, but that's quite a scary metaphor. Now, if we go out this afternoon and these things suddenly unfolded, I think we'd be pretty bothered by that. It would be a bit unsettling. I would have been nice. Well, uh, yeah. I prefer if the sun stays. It leaves enough in Scotland. It's hard enough to keep hold of it. But there's an illusion here that's beyond just the simple points that one of the elements of these latter days is going to be judgment. There is a judgment to come. And of course, we know part of that is when Jesus returns, when the Son of Man returns, there will be that final judgment. But there is a judgment that began right then as well. And actually, Jesus tells us about that judgment because he, tells, he spells out to us in John 16 as he speaks about the Spirit. From verse 8 to 11, he says, And when he comes, referring to the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is to be judged. So one of the things that happens is the Holy Spirit is poured out as it does bring an element of judgment upon this world. That judgment is there. And it's called conviction, Jesus says. Conviction. When Jesus is proclaimed, that judgment can come. But what's the point of that judgment? What's the purpose of it? Is it God simply doing it to point out people's flaws? To say, I'm going to show that person 
No. The purpose of that judgment is laid out bare in these verses as well. It's about salvation and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The purpose for judgment isn't simply to beat people with sticks. The purpose of the judgment of God in these latter days is that people experience conviction that leads to salvation. That people experience forgiveness. That people experience reconciliation. That people personally experience that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And what do we realize by that? Well, these latter days, they aren't so much about wrath as what they are, about grace. These latter days are a time when even the very judgment of God is working to point people to Christ so that they can experience that conviction of the Spirit and the freedom from sin and the reconciliation with God that He desires that every single person experiences. Even judgment is God's desire to bring salvation. It's all operating that way and empowered by his spirit at this point. And these events will continue until that moment when Jesus returns. For when that moment comes, he returns as judge. The dead, the dead will rise. The living shall be called before him. The final judgment will occur. When is that event going to happen? Well, let me tell you this, we don't know. And any preacher that tells you that they know the date is wrong. Because Jesus himself stressed, hey, this event is going to happen. And even I don't know when it's going to be. Why is he saying that? He's saying that because he's telling us, didn't he be focusing in on that? What we should be focusing in on, folks, is recognizing that actually he's coming back. And when he does come back, he's coming back as judge, okay? But what he's asked and commissioned and anointed and sealed us as his body to do is to impact his world as his body in such a way that that message of hope is still proclaimed and that people are given that opportunity to call on his name and experience salvation. How long we've got to do that, we have no idea. But what we do know is that is what God wants of us. In the same way as he used Peter here, he desires to use each and every one of us. So I just want to wrap this up by encouraging us all to live by the Spirit. To recognize his prompts. To spend time in his word. Not just reading it, okay? Well, You can read this and instantly forget it, okay? To see if you prayerfully read it. And you ask God to speak to you as you read it. You're not going to forget it in a hurry. Because he does. Find ways. Make space to commune with that spirit that resides in each and every one of us. Because let me assure you of something. These peculiar events that happened at Pentecost, as I said at the start, we have the same spirit. The same Holy Spirit indwells in us. Let me, let me put it out to you this way. Who here's had diluting juice before? Surprisingly, not many people have had diluting juice. I recommend you try it. You can get it in sugar free. Now, one of the things about diluting juice is you can stick stick the diluting juice in, the amount that you want, and then you put the water in. Okay? Now, what happens if you keep adding and adding and adding more water? Make it watery. 
That'll dilute it. It'll lose any effect whatsoever, won't it? Which is the way Iona likes to drink it. <laughs> Honestly, if you want to see diluting juice, it horrifies you. Look at how Iona drinks it. <laughs> That's not how it works with the Spirit, okay? It's not a case of the Holy Spirit. I've been dwelling and sealing and empowering and equipping these Christians for 2,000 years, which, by the way, has probably not been an easy job. And he's thinking, I'm tired, I'm diluted, and it's not quite working the same as it did a couple of thousand years ago. It's the same Spirit. It's the same Spirit that resides in each and every one of us. And we are part of the same body. 2,000 years later, we're not lesser, we're not different. We're the same. Drawn into that same body that's existed and transformed this world for 2,000 years and called to be the hands, the feet, the mouth of Jesus Christ. So that by our lives, our actions, our ethics, our principles, our reactions, our words, we can show something of Jesus Christ to the world around us and get those precious moments when we can speak to people about the hope that is in us. I want to close with one final illustration, okay? Who here is any good at gardening? Mm. <laughs> Nobody? Wow. Okay. We've got a semi-cautious from Rosalind, but apart from that, quite good, okay. Well, let me tell you, okay, I, I, I am struggling to grow grass seed in my back garden. <laughs> I'm putting it down. And then nothing happens. The same black patches are there, except I've got a few extra weeds now. I can grow weeds, apparently, but not even grass seed. One of the things that, that struck me is we, as we think about the Holy Spirit, as we think about that he's laying his desires into our hearts, that he is putting his hopes into our hearts, that he's prompting us in certain directions, I want us to think about the soil of our hearts. What is that? What are those hopes and desires and dreams of God himself that he gives to us being planted into? <coughs> is the soil of our heart fertile? Or is it going to corrupt and starve what God is planting within it? Something that I'm wrestling with, I have to, I have to say. And what came to my mind is, as I wrestled with that was what it says in 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. That sounds like a fertile place for the Holy Spirit's desires and hopes to be fulfilled some. And yet so often our hearts can be filled with our own opinions our theological declarations, our concerns, our fears, our angers, our hurts. And these are all things that God wants to minister into. Where there is faith, there is a dependence and trust in Jesus Christ. Where there is hope, there is a trust that his promises are true. Where there is love, there is God by his spirit in powerful ways. That's a fertile ground. For the reality is, if our heart is filled with all sorts of other things, the things of us, 
things that are contrary to what God wants of us, the Holy Spirit is still trying to plant stuff. And he's grieved as he sees it starved. He's grieved as he sees that we can't actually enact it. Jesus speaks a lot about our hearts, what we fill them with, what we let grow, what we let fester. But we also have a Holy Spirit who is there, who's transforming our hearts. Will we release that stuff? Will we let it go? Will we say, as we sung earlier, I'm ready to do your will? Part of doing this is releasing some of the stuff that we hold on to in our hearts that we know shouldn't be there. Part of it is not taking ourselves so seriously. Part of it is taking actually what God's word says more seriously. And hearing places such as 1 Corinthians 13, where these things, perspectives, attitudes are stressed. If we're ready to do God's will, if our desire is to do God's will, there are things that we need to release. That spirit is here this morning. The spirit of conviction, the spirit of power, the spirit of transformation. The spirit that declares to us that when John tells us in 1 John that God is faithful and just and will forgive every sin, he's here. What's in our hearts? Is there something that needs released? So that those fertile grounds can flourish for the spirit. answer that for each of us. I can answer it for myself and I take that to God. But he's here. Pentecost tells us, declares to us that we are part of those latter days. We are part of the fulfillment of that prophecy in Joel. We are those indwelled and sealed by the Holy Spirit. That Spirit resides in us and desires to use us as he did Peter to see Jesus glorified and the hope of the gospel proclaimed, laid bare before the people in our town, our workplaces, our families. It's their fertile ground. It's on that question that I close. And let's turn to prayer. Father, we begin just by expressing such deep gratitude to you tonight, this morning, sorry. Deep gratitude to you for your love for each and every one of us. Deep gratitude for you. That even though we turned away from you, you were faithful beyond our comprehension. You broke down the barrier of sin. You destroyed even the stain of death. You brought us back to you and promised us eternal life with you. You've redeemed everything in Jesus Christ and set your spirit in each of our hearts. Help us, Father, not to be a people that grieve your spirit. Help us to be a people that treasure that spirit, that rejoice in that spirit, that are humbled because we are the temple of the living God. Help us to look honestly into our hearts. To ask that question, is there fertile ground there for the Spirit as he plants and prompts with his hopes and dreams for our lives, for our callings, for our interactions with others? 
as he aims to use us as he did Peter to ultimately see Jesus proclaimed and for people to call upon the name of the Lord and experience salvation. Forgive us when we get this stuff wrong and when we make it so complicated and enable us to trust in you to have that faith, that hope and that love because we have encountered the living God, experienced his salvation and are indwelled by his spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to close this morning with a song which just simply exalts the name of God, which thanks him for his abundant mercy.